recently for a marketing campaign, I was just reviewing hundreds and hundreds of success stories from our students. We've graduated like over a thousand people, right? All it takes is just one personal story of the very real impact on the person's life to, to just warm your heart. That's what I'm proud of. I, yes, there are other things I'm proud of. I'm proud of the fact that we've survived through all kinds of economic variability. I'm proud we survived COVID. That was pretty wild. But it's the impact on individual lives. And as you start to scale, and I'll never forget the first time that I bumped into students on the streets of Portland that I didn't know. They walked by and said, hi, Eric. And I was like, huh? My name is Eric Gross, and I'm the co-founder of the Tech Academy. This is Code Story. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Spent six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the backhand. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Eric Rose has built the trade school for getting into tech by focusing on the practical application of coding. This episode is sponsored by KiteWorks. Legacy-managed file transfer tools lack proper security, putting sensitive data at risk. With KiteWorks MFT, companies can send automated or ad hoc files in a fully integrated, highly secure manner. The solution is FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense and has been so since 2017. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit KiteWorks.com to get started. This episode is sponsored by ClearQuery. ClearQuery is the Analytics for Humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. With Ask ClearQuery, you can find valuable insights into your data using plain English. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify your data analytics with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash codestory. Eric Gross has had an odd journey into tech. He grew up in the redwoods of California, off the grid with no running water in a teepee. However, there was a pivotal moment in his life when his dad brought home an old-school computer and taught him about the internals, hardware, binary, and removed all mystery from computers. He had a career in the Navy as a nuclear reactor operator and gained a lot from the training methods of the Navy. Outside of tech, he's married with kids and recently moved to Louisiana. He enjoys cigars and tasting whiskey on occasion. Eric has a background in training while being a working engineer. He continuously took on side gigs where he would need to have a junior engineer join him, and he couldn't find them. He decided to build a program that created this engineer for him and was affirmed when he found a competitor doing the same thing. This is the creation story of the Tech Academy. We're a code school. There's really, in my mind, like only three ways to get into tech. You can self-study, you can go the college or university route, or you can go to a code school. And when I started the Tech Academy, 
There was only two routes because Code Schools has only had only been around for five or six months at the time. What we do is we help people become well-rounded entry-level technology workers. And at this point, we've got 11 different boot camps. When we started, it was one. It was a C-sharp.net boot camp. There I was being a working engineer. I would constantly find myself having side projects. I always like to have some kind of gig on the side. I firmly believe in multiple streams of income. And there were a lot of side gigs I would take on where I'd really find myself needing some sort of an entry level or junior developer. And I couldn't find any, man. Finding resources, tech talent online wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. And so I would look at places like Craigslist or, or some of the job boards or some of the, I couldn't find junior developers. One afternoon, like in the spring of 2013, my my teenage son comes home from school and he was in a coding or computer class. I tried very much not to like geek out all over that and ask him how he liked it and what did he learn because I just wanted to let that kind of reach of his not be blunted. But he came in with this piece of paper and he said, Dad, I want to go to a coding boot camp. And I said, What's a coding boot camp? He's like, it's the spring of 2013. And I looked at this promo and I look at what they do and I'm like, wait a minute, four or five months to become a working entry level web developer is what they did. And I'm like, how is this possible? And so that's where the spark first came in. I just started researching. There was only about seven or eight boot camps in, in the country that I could even find. I really started to get excited about this. I did a lot of research with different recruiters I knew, different technology workers, hiring managers, everybody that I could throw this idea past to get their opinion on it. And it was getting uniformly good reaction to it. And so I started to realize, wow, this has got some legs, maybe, this idea. But then I went online and just started poking around Right in Portland, Oregon, I found it, Portland Code School. Somebody had already made a boot camp in Portland. And the reason I bring that up is because I, I will never forget that moment. It was like a gut punch. Because in my ignorance, I thought, oh no, I waited too long. I didn't get on the bandwagon soon enough. And I almost just gave up right then. I sat there struggling with that. And then I remembered something I read in a book like years before. The idea you have, if other people are already doing something like it, that just validates the idea. If no one's doing it, it doesn't mean you're some magical genius and came up with something that like, wow, I didn't think of that. It's pretty risky, actually. And so I kept moving forward and eventually we succeeded and did really well. Let's dive into the MVP then. Let's start on that first product you built or the first vision that you brought to life. And maybe it was that first boot camp that was C-sharp. I'll let you decide and take me through the journey. But tell me about that MVP. What sort of, you know, tools or methodologies were you using and teaching? And, you know, how long did it take you to bring it to life? So I actually just sat down one, one afternoon and started to list out on paper. I did something that's uncomfortable for me. It was then and it still is now, which is basically writing down on paper, why am I awesome? I went and I said, okay, I'm very comfortable with computers and programming and complex systems and teaching and all these things. And I, but I had to isolate from an objective outside point of view. Why is that? What are the underpinnings of that confidence and that ability? And I started to isolate some pretty interesting things. And one of them was that inside a computer and the fundamental actions all the way down to the individual silicon elements because of the training got the Navy. My, my, my knowledge of the fundamentals before you even start writing a program was rock solid. And what that meant was that even though the pace of technology was about a million miles a minute, I could always relate it back to the fundamentals. So I knew that had to be a key component of what we do. The other part of it is that I knew that from trying to teach people how to actually get something done, like the practical training in the Navy, we actually have to operate things, right? I knew that if you didn't pay attention to the gradient at which you presented the information, and especially 
If you forgot what it was like to be new to the subject, you were almost guaranteed to enter the subject at too high of a gradient. And so I knew that whatever we did as a program, we'd have to start a lot lower than most people might think. And the third thing was, there's no substitute for actually just getting your hands dirty. I knew that my program had to have some sort of practical element where we simulated the working environment as much as possible so people could feel like, oh, I could actually be part of a team and actually do the job. And so that and a few other elements, I just sat down one day and and documented them. And that was, in my mind, what the product was going to look like. Concentrate on the fundamentals. Make sure you teach it at the right gradient, the right order, only adding in complexity when someone has fully grasped the, the current thing they're studying. And then give them some practical experience that as closely as possible emulates the real world. We couldn't create that instantly. We didn't have any curriculum. There was a lot to be created. And so the point at which we first had something we could deliver to someone was a very done-for-you, one-on-one kind of service where I was basically two or three steps ahead of the first students, just madly creating curriculum or pulling in whatever sort of quote-unquote open source things I could find online just to be a few steps ahead and give them material to work on. And then when it came to the live project element of it, I just had to help them help me on software I was already building, right? So I was able to have all the elements there, but it was very much a cope. Let's just be one or two steps ahead of the students. And it worked, but it was stressful as all get out. This episode is sponsored by KiteWorks. Legacy managed file transfer tools are dated and lack the security that today's remote workforce demands. Companies that continue relying on outdated technology put their sensitive data at risk. And that's where KiteWorks comes in. KiteWorks MFT is absolutely the most secure MFT on the market today. It has been FedRAMP moderate authorized by the Department of Defense since 2017. Through FedRAMP, KiteWorks level of security compliance provides a fast route to CMMC compliance, saving customers time, effort, and money. KiteWorks MFT makes it easy for users to send automated or ad hoc files via fully integrated shared folders and email. Administrators can manage policies in a unified console and create custom integrations using their API. Did we mention it's secure? The level of security with KiteWorks solution is rare to find. Step into the future of secure managed file transfer with KiteWorks. Visit KiteWorks.com to get started. That's K-I-T-E-W-O-R-K-S dot com. This episode is sponsored by CashFly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where CashFly comes in. CashFly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, CashFly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only CashFly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5-terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. Learn more at cashfly.com slash codestory. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com slash codestory. 
So you've got the the MVP, quote unquote. You deployed it. You're essentially, you know, writing the exercises as you go. It's stressful, but you're making it work and you're getting some traction. Tell me about how you progressed and matured the product from there. I think that I'm I'm curious about, you know, to wrap that in a box a little bit. What I'm curious about is how you built your roadmap for the Tech Academy. How did you decide? Okay, this is the next most important thing to address or the next most important piece of content or course to do with the Tech Academy? We looked at the logical sequence in which we'd have to teach things, right? Again, keep in mind what I'd learned from the Navy. We knew we'd have to start with more fundamentals than we were seeing in, at that point, the handful of other competitors we had. And we recognized that If we can set in the foundation and then have them go through a bunch of training and then do a live project really well, those bookends are the most important aspect. And so in terms of priorities of what we're going to work on, we attacked those two things and we started with the fundamentals and we worked out what we call the computer basics course, which essentially takes you almost a week. And you don't do any coding on it. You're removing every bit of mystery and confusion about all the technology terms and concepts and how everything works, not just for programming, but for computers themselves and for all aspects of technology. I think I recorded 80 videos for that course alone. And again, if you did it full time, eight hours a day, it'll take you five or six days to get through a lot of content. And that was our first real, we made it purely ourselves. It was imbued with everything we knew was important to us as technologists and as educators. And then we attacked the live project and went, okay, how do we solve this? But started to think of scale. And so we just made partnerships with local nonprofits and, and, and smaller you know businesses that needed software and said, hey, listen, we can't guarantee fast turnaround because we're gonna use our students, but we can do this project for you and it'll be a real software project. And so that's how we got our first real software for the students to work on. Those two things in place, now we can start to make decisions about filling in the curriculum in between. I hear you saying we. I know there's you and your co-founder, but I, I imagine to to get it to a point where you are now, you needed to build a team. So tell me about that team and how you went about building it. I'm curious about what you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses, the winning teachers, the winning people to join you. I'm a really good teacher and technologist. I am not a very good executive or administrator. Once I got past the honeymoon phase of, oh my word, this is an amazing idea. I can't, and I've I've got all these plans and I'm so excited. I I, I had a a couple of days where I just stepped back and went, Eric, you're working full time. You're not like the person who establishes and grows organizations. You better find someone to help you. I'd known Jack Stanley for years and years at that point. And everything I didn't have in terms of executive ability, he did. But he was also, and here's a point that I really want to impart to the listeners. He was working a $100,000 a year job. And he deserved it. He was very good. Had a company car, had a company phone, all this kind of stuff. So when I approached him, he was familiar with technology, but it wasn't his primary background. He was like, Eric, I see what you're building. I see that it has a lot of potential and I do want to come on board, but I just have to have the same equivalent pay and and system that I've got right now, or it doesn't make sense. I had to make a very big gamble. I only had one paid student at that time, maybe two. I didn't have the run rate, the revenue to even remotely justify bringing on, at that point, it wasn't a partner. It was just, he was going to be my CEO at $100,000 a year. That was insane. And my wife definitely didn't want me to do it, but I was confident enough of of, of the product we're going to produce and of what he and I would build together because we'd work together on many projects that I just, I did it taking full responsibility for the fact that it didn't go well. That was all on me. 
I made the choice. I owned that choice. And it was a hard choice. So to speak to your question of like, how do you pick the people? There was two factors. He had qualities I didn't. And those qualities were vital to the, even the existence of the company. Without that ability to establish and grow an organization, an enterprise, I was doomed. It didn't matter that I was like smart and a really good teacher. That didn't matter. We would periodically, every month or so, list out all the things we were still doing. At the beginning, it was everything, right? And we would isolate, okay, what are the easiest things? It was almost like Pareto principle. We've got this 20% of things that when we work on them, we produce the greatest impact in the company. Look, Let's look at this other 80%. Which of those will be the easiest to bring someone else on? And this is where Jack's genius came in. He designed for, from the very beginning, there was always a written policy for every single person on exactly what their job duties were and what they were responsible for, but also what their rights were and how to operate in the organization. And more importantly, we designed an apprenticeship program for each one. They would watch us do the actual action because we had done everything from the beginning. They would watch us do it. They would write up what they gathered out of that and how they thought it should be done. And we correct any misunderstandings. Then we would supervise them doing it and we'd slowly take off the training wheels. And only when they were certain they were confident in doing it, would we just walk away and monitor from a distance. And we used that pattern over and over again, but we always made sure they had written policy on how to do their jobs and that they got the mentorship from us. And it meant a slower period before they were quote unquote, fully on the job. But when they got on the job, they stuck. They were confident and certain they could do what they were doing. And they had the material on how to do it all written down. They could always refer to it. And over time, we built up 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 staff like that. Each one properly apprenticed and confident and, and having a written policy on what to do. Hello. Welcome to the Data Analytics Club. Do you know the password? No, I didn't know there was one. Do you know how to code? Uh, no. Do you know how to query data? Like, ask a question? I guess not. Hmm, I see. Then you can't be in this club. Sorry. Goodbye. Don't be left out of the analytics club. ClearQuery is the Analytics for Humans platform. With their full suite of features, you can go from data ingestion to automated insights seamlessly. ClearQuery provides you with the information you need without requiring you to do the heavy lifting. Their Ask ClearQuery feature allows you to ask questions in plain English, helping you find relationships and connections in your data that may have previously gone unnoticed. You can even visualize your data with presentation mode, taking your data storytelling to the next level. Pricing is based on storage, not licenses, and that ensures that you get the most bang for your buck. Don't miss the opportunity to simplify data analytics, your data analytics, with ClearQuery. Get started today at clearquery.io slash codestory. This episode is sponsored by Cashfly. The web is a competitive place, and if your site delivers its content pixelated, slow, or not at all, well, then you lose. But that's where Cashfly comes in. Cashfly delivers rich media content up to 159% faster than other major CDNs. Through ultra-low latency streaming, lightning-fast gaming, and optimized mobile content, the company offers a variety of benefits. For over 20 years, Cashfly has held a track record for high-performing, ultra-reliable content delivery. While competitors call themselves fast or use cute animal names, only Cashfly holds the record of being the fastest and serves customers like Adobe, the NFL, or Roblox, where content is created by users and must be delivered in real time. For the first time ever, Code Story listeners can get a 5 terabyte CDN for free. Yep, you heard that right, free. 
Learn more at cashfly.com slash code story. That's C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com slash code story. So you mentioned this earlier. You mentioned, you know, not building it to scale essentially from the from the very beginning. But I'm curious about how you're approaching that now or or tell me some stories about where you've had to fight this as you grew and gained traction. It was about the middle of 2014. This all went down in 2013, right? Like the origin story and getting together with Jack. And by around July 2014, we moved out of this tiny little incubator in a small suburb of Portland and into our own offices, right? Our mission is to remove the gap between the average person and technology. There's a big gap there. And we want to bridge that gap for people. We want to make technology accessible to everyone. And we also wanted to create well-rounded entry-level developers who can raise the standard of the industry. And we sat down and looked at why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing. But here's the point I'm getting to is that we knew that it had to be intensive and that if someone wanted to start, that the best thing for them was to be able to start immediately and to be able to do it part-time or full-time. We started to look at what does that look like? And we knew it was going to mean a lot of work on our part, but we wanted to deliver, we wanted to make this available to as many people as possible. No cohorts, no having to wait six weeks till the next cohort starts. You can start tomorrow or even today. Don't have to quit your job and do it full time. You can do it part time while you have a regular job. So the reason I'm relating this to scale is that when we looked at, okay, if that's something we're committed to and we're going to do that, then from the very beginning, we've got to be able to build the way we actually impart the knowledge, the actual teaching part cannot be synchronous. It has to be asynchronous. It has to be able to allow people to come in at any time. And we started to build it that way. It was only a few weeks in when we realized we're building something that is scalable because we built it so that we don't require live instructors. We don't require that an instructor be tied to one group of people being at a certain stage of this linear process. Because we were pushing the teaching methodology, to not be dependent on any one single person or on people arriving at a lecture hall at a specific time. It was scalable from the beginning, but we didn't intend to. It was like I say, a few weeks in, we went, oh, we could plug one person into the system a day or a hundred and it would accommodate it. And so all of a sudden we started looking at, hey, what, what if we did get a hundred students in a day? How quickly can we onboard new instructors? So the scale question came second. It was our obligation, our promise to our ideal client that came first. And we just found that the way we solved it ended up being aligned with scale. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built with the Tech Academy, what are you most proud of? Recently for a marketing campaign, I was just reviewing hundreds and hundreds of success stories from our students. We've graduated like over a thousand people, right? All it takes is just one personal story of the very real impact on the person's life to to just warm your heart. That's what I'm proud of. Yes, there are other things I'm proud of. I'm proud of the fact that we've survived through all kinds of economic variability. I'm proud we survived COVID. That was pretty wild because at that moment, COVID started, 50% of our students were in person and 50% were remote. And suddenly they were 100% remote. So I'm proud of a lot of those things. I'm proud of our curriculum, proud of my team, but it's the impact on individual lives. And as you start to scale, and I'll never forget the first time that I bumped into students on the streets of Portland that I didn't know. They walked by and said, hi, Eric. And I was like, huh? I didn't know who they were. And that broke my heart because prior to then I knew every student. So as you start to scale, you can lose sight a little bit of that personal impact. But it was just 
like I said, it was just last week. I'm going through all these and it's just, we really, really help people. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Okay, so this is brutal, but we survived it. I think the school had been around for about four years, five years at this point, and we had a fully built out curriculum for three or four different boot camps. So all of our infrastructure behind the scenes was on Microsoft's cloud provider, Azure. And they have a construct in Azure that can hold every single resource you have. You can put all of your resources like websites and databases and everything all in one big bucket. And these buckets, they're really hard to delete, which makes sense because they hold everything And if they go away, they are permanently gone forever. There's no backups of them. They're just gone. We really don't know how it happened. But one morning we wake up and the entire website is down, including our learning management system, which contains all of our curriculum that we have worked for years to create. It's gone. I'll never forget that moment as I'm going through all the dashboards behind the scenes with Azure and looking and I'm like, there's no way. It's fully gone. We might lose last couple days of student progress or signups or something, but we'll be able to recover. And the moment when I realized that it was well and truly gone, I wouldn't wish on anybody. There's two sides to this company, what we teach and how we teach it. And without the what you teach, how you teach it doesn't matter. (laughs) So it it was a moment that stretched on for a couple of days. But as that, like how we recovered, first of all, what I really appreciated was that there wasn't much recrimination and blame and he said she said we all just realized that we had a literal all hands on deck emergency and we had to handle it right now because the future of the school could depend on it our tech guys immediately started figuring out how to reproduce all the resources we had inside based on their the versions of the code they had on their computers the last known check-ins and everything and started reproducing all that figured out how to reproduce databases and all the records and meanwhile My co-founder and I just started going crazy looking for, okay, where else is this curriculum? And it turns out we had done a little project about two months before. We were trying to figure out what could make the entire curriculum searchable. And we pulled off a little clone of all the curriculum in that just to mess around with it. It was a nothing project that could have just been closed down and deleted any day. And we wouldn't have cared because it wasn't important. But it became extremely important when we realized that's the only copy of the curriculum we have. So one of the neat things that came out about it, that came out of it, is that we realized, okay, we we found it. Crisis, or at least the major part of it, was averted. We have the curriculum. But now we need to reproduce all of these courses. And they were built by hand over a period of years. And so we were forced to create a little utility that would ingest all the curriculum material and automatically create the courses for us. We had to do it. It it took a couple of days, but it would have been a matter of weeks to re-enter every single step manually. And what's really cool is now you flash forward five, six, seven years since that wonderful period of time, that incident. And that's how all of our curriculum works now. When we design the curriculum, we just feed it into a format that our automatic curriculum development tool can use and slurps it up and boom, you have curriculum instantly and changes to it go online within seconds. It's really cool. So the things I really appreciated was the all hands on deck approach, the lack of recrimination, the acknowledgement of the severity of the situation, and a we refuse to give up attitude that everyone involved had. And we recovered totally within about four days. We didn't lose any students. We kept on enrolling people. We survived. But that was one of the most existential painful moments we, we ever faced. 
this will be interesting. What does the future look like for the Tech Academy as a, you know, a, a product, a company, and for your team? There's a couple aspects of this that I'm really excited about. One is Tech Academy International. For a long time, we faced a dilemma. We would have demand from overseas, from company, sorry, from countries that maybe weren't as economically developed as America and Europe. But the economics of the situation meant that we really couldn't sell according to where the dollar was worth in, in their in that country. But we started to notice about four or five months ago that recent developments in artificial intelligence and translation and video conversion made it so that there was a possibility that we could actually turn our automated versions of our boot camps and convert them to all the major languages of the world. And we're working on that right now. And I'm super excited about that because he, he, here's the thing. Everybody's proud of their company and their product and their service. They better be. Why are they doing it if not? But I'll tell you, the introductory parts of our program with our course called the Computer Basics course that removes all mystery about computers and technology from the learner before they get engaged in the heavy lifting of learning computer programming fundamentals and what language they're going to learn and databases and web technologies, all the stuff that you need as an engineer, right? Before they even get into that, we remove all of the confusion about the underlying fundamental principles so that they... It just, it calms them down as a learner. It gives them an unbelievably solid foundation. The reason I'm going into this is that course alone should be in the hands of anyone on earth who uses technology, whether you're going to be a programmer or not. There's two sides of this to get me really excited. One is, of course, the business opportunity to be able to present our curriculum automatically translated into a bunch of different languages and the videos can convert and that kind of thing. But the other part of it is just a humanitarian thing. We can't escape technology, even if you wanted to. It's just part of life. And many people use it without understanding what's going on under the hood. And anything we can do to help people around the world with that, it makes us feel great. That's not going to require a huge change in terms of the team. It's just it's a special project, get it up and running, and then we can roll it out around the world. Marketing is going to have a blast marketing to different you know countries around the world. The second thing that is just near and dear to my heart is that in the very near future, we're going to be helping people not just break into tech, but to have super successful careers. We're opening up an arm that does two things. Technology career coaching to help you move up the ladder, whatever your career track is going to be, whether you're a straight engineer, you will move from an individual contributor and then become a people leader, or whether you're in a different discipline like data science or game development. What does that career track look like for you? How can we help you advance faster? And then the other part of it is there's a lot of technology folks that have a very entrepreneurial spirit, and they're very interested in leveraging their hard-won knowledge to turn it into some sort of a scalable side income. And we want to help those folks too. So we've been running some pilot projects on that for almost the last year. And very soon that'll become a core part of what we can provide people, anybody who's broken into technology, not just our graduates. So that's going to require a whole second team that becomes experts in career development, enhancement, coaching, entrepreneurial mindset, all that kind of stuff. And I'm just super excited about that. So let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. I'll tell you what, before we get to a person, I'm going to start with a specific experience I had in the Navy that affects a lot of how I do my work and how I design my curriculum. So I was a nuclear reactor operator in the Navy, right? And my specific discipline was electronics technician. That alone was hard to get into and through. Really rigorous training, and they did a great job. But I got picked up to be an instructor teaching the people in the pipeline right behind me some of those final practical steps. We had a, a nuclear reactor in a submarine out in the desert in Idaho, of all things. And we would lead students through actual practical use of these systems, like all the systems on the boat, not just the nuclear reactor. It it was a blast. And I did decently enough at that, that after about six months, my commander nominated me for what's called electronics technician 
Maintenance School, ETMS. The most boring name, because that's what the military is good at, is boring names, right? Turns out this is one of the best schools I've ever seen in my life. What they would do is they would go through all of the incidents that occurred out in the fleet, any Navy ship anywhere. And these are incidents that were usually extremely severe, where there was a lot of actual physical damage, or there was loss of operational capability, like your boat is dead in the water, or there was a tremendous expense to be able to fix it. Major incidents. What they do is they would actually fly in and permanently install the equipment that was involved in said incidents, and they would reproduce the exact thing that went wrong. And so we had this balance. It's this two-week-long period that was one of the most intense two weeks of my life. In the morning, there'd be education about systems engineering and thinking and diagnosing complex interrelated systems. And in the afternoon, they would throw you into, here's the initial thing that went wrong with this system, figure out what's wrong. And they wouldn't give you any help at all. And I'll tell you what, it was some of the most intellectually challenging work I've ever had and extremely high pressure because there's only six of us in this school and it's all on us and only 12 people a year get into this program. The pressure is really high. But what I learned in that two weeks about how to embrace the ambiguity involved or the complexity involved in a highly complex system with many interrelated parts, how to isolate and separate out the different concerns of that system and eliminate one by one where the fault or the problem isn't has been unbelievably valuable to me over the entire course of my career. It affects so much of how we teach engineers to think with complex systems. Every single time we're designing some part of the curriculum, that two-week experience comes back to me. So even though I don't remember the names of the instructors, they're heroes in my mind (laughs) all these decades later. Okay, last question, Eric. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? There's a couple of things that I think right at the beginning of the entrepreneurial journey are super important. The first one is to recognize that you can't have a sacred cow. You can't have something that it means so much to you that you are willing to ignore reality about it. It takes tremendous work to birth something into the world, something new. And very often that thing is going to be of value to people and they are going to want it, but there's a challenge in getting your message in front of the right people at the right time. That whole marketing piece and gaining initial traction for your idea. And it's just, some of that's just hard work. But sometimes the market doesn't think your idea is as cool as you do. And so one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give is to be willing to be wrong and constantly pivot. What I mean by that is, whatever your idea is, to find out a way as fast as possible to test it against the marketplace for free or as low a cost as possible because it doesn't matter how you feel about it. What matters is, how does your ideal customer or client feel about it? The other part of it is, you've got to, from the very beginning, start thinking about your team and your culture. Even when you're one person, what do you want this group to be like? And part of the reason I think that's important and what I would impart to a hypothetical person sitting next to me on the plane is even if it's just a mental idea of what kind of a group you want to have, until you firm that up in your mind, you're not going to attract people in a purposeful manner to the, the people that are, you know, that grasp, they capture the same vision you have, the same, they have the same idea about how to help the people that were there to help. And You need to do that so when you're ready for it in that stage of bringing people on, you bring on the right people because you're going to need a team to accomplish something really big. So it wouldn't be like specific logistical advice about here's how to get venture capital and 
No, it's much more important to be willing to be wrong and to pivot fast and to start thinking right at the beginning about what kind of a culture and a a group do I want to create. That's fantastic advice. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of the Tech Academy. My pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. This is a wonderful thing you do. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save